The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. This is a intermission episode, so not a regular episode. These I tend to put in whenever uh, we come upon a week where Daniel, Paul, and I cannot record together, at least in some sort of combination, if not all together. So that's where we're at. I'm working the Friday and the Saturday of the weekend that this will go up, so... No time to record. Uh, just a little quick note. Uh, if you've been following the podcast, you're familiar with our slasher series that we've had going on. We recorded two episodes last weekend, and unfortunately one of them is totally gone. Just wiped away from the face of the earth, face of the internet, whatever you want to say. Totally my fault. Uh, we recorded the Just Before Dawn Motel Hell one. That is the latest episode that is up before this episode. And of course you can go and listen to that, and it's a very good episode, I think. We also did one on Prom Night and Maniac Cop, and unfortunately I fucked up and destroyed that episode. See, this is how we usually do it, and this is just sort of the inner workings of how we record for here, for this podcast. We used to use Skype, and I used to record Skype with an Elgato. I found it very inefficient. Uh, There was too many lag issues where I had to spend at least an hour syncing up tracks just to make them, just, just to, you know, sync them up so... Uh, I'm not saying something, and then Daniel's responding like literally like 30 seconds later on the audio track because the uh, left and right tracks are so out of sync. So I stopped doing that, and I decided, hey, why don't I just use Google Hangouts? Because you can rip any Google video, uh, or YouTube video, I should say, and you can just rip the audio from it and use that. And that's what I've been doing now for most of the episodes of the series. Uh, We record on a Google Hangout on Friday nights usually. We usually do it in a sort of a private on-air recording, like you got a couple options. You can have a private video chat, which you can't get access to afterwards and rip the audio from, or you can have an on-air Hangout, and you can make that sort of private as well, where you only advertise it to the people you want to actually join in, and then no one else will see it unless you make it listed on your channel afterwards. So that's what we usually do. We do a private on-air chat, and then I just rip the audio and throw it through Audacity, edit it, and then usually edit it in uh, Movie Maker or whatever cheap-ass fucking editing software I have right now. It's what, Windows Live? or No, I, I use the original Movie Maker because the Windows Live Movie Maker is a piece of garbage that's designed for people with no creativity at all, and who don't want to express any creativity. So anyway, I I do that. After that, I usually go back into my video manager list on my YouTube channel, where all these hangouts go to, and I delete them, because I don't need them anymore. I've got the audio ripped, that's all I need. Well, I've neglected to rip the audio for the Maniac Cop Prom Night episode, and I got off work the other morning. I was very, very tired. I was going through my video manager. I saw that just before dawn... 
Motel Hell went up there and was like, well, I should get that off my list. So I'll purge that and delete it. And without thinking, I deleted the Maniac Cop Prom Night episode as well. So that is gone for good, which is a shame. It was actually a really good episode. Uh, I already apologized to Daniel and Paul because, you know, they gave up their Saturday night to uh, fucking record on an extra night on my request. So it was totally my fault. It was just one of those things I fucked up. Hopefully it will never happen again. But yeah, there, there you go. That's why that episode isn't there. I will give a brief rundown of what we thought of the movies now. Prom Night, I think we all sort of agreed. Essentially, it has sort of the quintessential elements of slasher films. Even in 1980-81 when it was made, it already felt kind of dated and kind of pre-functionary and kind of like ripped off several other movies. There's elements of Italian giallo, there's stuff from Black Christmas, uh, there's other elements there that are just When a Stranger Calls, films like that. There's, there's all those sort of elements you, to be found, and they're not brought together in any sort of fashion that's new or interesting. Uh, the only highlights I think we all agreed were Jamie Lee Curtis's performance, which was better than the movie actually deserved. Uh, we liked the beheading kill. Uh, we got a laugh out of some of the characters, like the Neanderthal, the Unibrow, and Slick with his with his van, the uh, lovable sort of loser guy who betters himself and has the confidence to actually bag a girl. And we all sort of... Uh, felt bad that he actually had to die in the movie because he was like the one interesting character and we sort of mused that he uh, essentially came out of the movie that we reviewed a few months back the van essentially he's a character from that movie somehow transported to a slasher movie universe so and yeah and of course we made note of uh, Leslie Nielsen sort of his like last real dramatic performance before he went into full-blown comedies and and stuff like that spoof movies and, you know, we, we didn't hate the movie or anything, but it was just kind of kind of there. Very overrated, overrated slasher film, really. Although it did have a really nice sort of slow build. Nothing really happened in that slow build. That's the biggest problem. Like, all the kills happened within, like, the last half hour of the film. And the identity of the killer is pretty much given away, like, right away. So, yeah, so we, we, we thought it wasn't necessarily great. Uh, as for Maniac Cop, we all love that one. That that one, uh, I think, is sort of a latter-day classic of the of the genre, sort of right at the tail end of the slasher genre, the classic era of the slasher genre, anyway. And it sort of mixed in the cop movie as well, and we all sort of appreciated that it sort of uh, integrated those two genres really well together. Had some great performances from Tom Atkins and Bruce Campbell, of course. Uh, Robert Zadar is nice and imposing as the uh, killer. Uh, the backstory, the flashback to how and why he became a killer is incredibly well done. We all thought that was great. And uh, definitely Maniac Cop is a recommendation from all of us to uh, seek out if you haven't seen it. I'm sure it's a movie a lot of people have heard of and they just kind of think, oh, it's probably just a really cheap, bad movie. No, it's actually a really entertaining movie that cuts out all the fat and just goes along at a great pace, and yeah, it's and it's over before you know it, and you feel satisfied after watching it, so that's what we thought of those movies anyway, uh, again, I'm sorry we don't have the episode for you to listen to, I'm kicking myself, I've been pissed off at myself all week for fucking that up, because it actually was a really entertaining episode, and we had a lot of fun doing it. Next weekend, we might be recording, I do not know at this point. If not, I'm probably going to throw up the uh, last part of our uh, Movie Villains episode that I broke into three parts. Uh, that'll be my chat with Paul in that one. 
and we'll finish that up. Hopefully we'll be able to record. If we do record, it's going to be on a Saturday. I just really have no idea what we're going to do yet. We, we, we need to discuss it a little bit, I think. Uh, September, we're at least hoping to get in a Mel Brooks episode where we'll have uh, Daniel and we'll be joined by Daniel's wife, Shayna, and hopefully our friend Ryan as well, if we can get that worked out. I don't know if we can do it or not, but we're going to try. Don't know what movies we're going to pick yet. Maybe like Young Frankenstein and Spaceballs or something along those lines. Try Maybe try to pick like a classic era Brooks film and then like a latter-day Brooks film. We'll see what we can do. And also we're thinking of doing Zardos. That one was requested by a friend of mine from the beer reviewing community online. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're thinking of doing Zardos, just a little Sean Connery running around in way too revealing clothing and uh, big heads driven by gods who frown on sex but like distributing guns to people. I mean, it's just a perfect kind of 70s weirdness. So we're thinking of getting in that. So that's what you can look forward to in the future. And now we're going to cut over to a few reviews. This time around, I'm not going to go into my blog archive. I'm going to go into some recent reviews I wrote on Letterboxd. Just a few movies I've watched in the last little while, and I'll just read those reviews right now. So we'll be right back with that. Hey, I'm Christian Bale as Batman, and when I'm not running the streets of Gotham, I'm listening to It Must Be Destroyed Out Sight, a movie podcast. Where's everything? Where's Rachel Alright guys, we're back and I'm going to just take a look at my Letterboxd account and take a look at a couple movies I recently watched. I'll just uh, let you know what I thought of them. Uh, I saw A Circle of Iron from 1978. This is a David Carradine uh, film, essentially. This was originally written by Bruce Lee, but I think it sort of languished in uh, development hell for a while after he died. And then finally James Coburn and a couple other people got it off the ground. David Carradine wasn't the first choice to be on this one, I guess think originally they were going to get Bruce Lee to star in it and then it moved on to a couple other different people they eventually settled on Carradine this was sort of the height of Carradine's pre-Madonna kind of uh, stage of his career so there's like a lot of people actually didn't really want to work with him at all but this is essentially a, a martial arts adventure and it's got this real tinge of uh, Zen Buddhism in it. A lot of it just comes off as 1960s, 1970s, New Age self-help hogwash. Uh, the martial arts action in it is severely lacking. There's there's really not a lot of good fights or anything in it. A lot of it's just really bad. It, it looks like sped up Tai Chi. I think that's actually what it's supposed to be. Uh, most of it just sort of looks like sped up Tai Chi. If you ever seen David Carradine's Tai Chi videos that he did for a while there, exercise videos, I, I seem to recall them showing up. I think it was in the 1990s or something like that. He had some of them out. But yeah, that's that's essentially what the the level of the martial arts in this one looks looks like. Uh, there's a lot of stunt casting in this one. You've got Christopher Lee of all people, Eli Wallach, and Roddy McDowell in a brief scene in the beginning of the film. Eli Wallach's cameo appearance here is especially confusing. Essentially, he's this guy sitting in a vat of oil, and he's basically trying to rot his lower half off, get rid of his junk, because he believes his penis is evil and the downfall of mankind and all that stuff. Really fucking weird, but at the same time, it kind of adds a bit of a underlying comedic interest to the whole film. 
and the film itself looks really really good. I'll I'll say this: it looks really good. Very vibrant colors and stuff. Like there's a lot of desert locations and things like that, and they're running around. And the hero was played by Jeff Cooper. He sort of fell off the face of the earth after this film. I think he just did uh, soap operas and stuff like that afterwards, which is kind of a shame because he's actually pretty engaging in this. Essentially, he's going on this spiritual journey to find this grandmaster uh, martial artist, and he thinks he's supposed to fight him or something like that and uh, obtain enlightenment and all that sort of nonsense. But uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it sounds like I'm shitting on it a lot, but I'm really not. There's, there's just a lot of wonky kind of crap in it, but it does feature Carradine playing four different roles, which is kind of fun to see, and like I said, the stunt casting makes it kind of interesting just to see big names just sort of doing weird shit in films, and I mean, if you're a big Carradine fan, this is definitely an essential one to see, because Carradine's actually really good in it. He he was given it his all in a film that probably didn't really deserve it, uh, but yeah, it's, it's worth checking out if you if you ever were curious. I'm pretty sure it's probably on... Um, Actually, I think I watched it on YouTube. Yeah, I did. So, yeah, it's on YouTube, I believe. And I think it might also be on Netflix. I can't remember at the moment. But, yeah, Circle of Iron from 1978. I'll just put a word out on um, It Follows from uh, last year. I know it's an overhyped film at this point. There's a lot of people now. There's kind of like a backlash against it. And I say basically just fuck that because I think it's a pretty uh, well-made homage to sort of a mood and style from the 1980s. Although... When, when you look at the film, it doesn't necessarily set itself in any specific decade, but it, it, it does have that sort of slow burn uh, feel. Great soundtrack, great mood, great atmosphere. I think it's kind of refreshing to see a film that, even though it does have some specific influences from from films, especially like John Carpenter films, there, there's a scene like in a classroom that feels directly ripped from Halloween but it works so well. What I'm saying here is I think the refreshing thing is it's not just some director saying, oh, look at all the horror films I've seen. Look how cute I am. Look at me put this direct ripoff slash homage into my film from this horror film. Looky, looky, looky. It's, it's just small little homages just around the edge to sort of overall build the atmosphere of the film. It's, it's not throwing it in your face. So I really like that. I personally do think this has the potential to be like a, a horror classic down the line. I think right now there's just too many people crapping on it. It's got sort of that uh, instant backlash that the Blair Witch had after it, its initial run in theaters or whatever. In, in that case, people just seemed like they were upset that they had been fooled because a lot of people thought that it was a fact that that actually happened. And then when they found out they were being fooled, they were pissed off, I guess. And it kind of, always kind of confused me. You're watching a movie to be fooled. But if you're told later on that you were fooled, apparently it's not okay anymore. But if you just go into a movie and let yourself be fooled and no one ever tells you that you're being fooled, all of a sudden, you know, it's fine. But, yeah, I, I don't think this is like the next Halloween or anything, you know. Like, I, I think a lot of people sort of uh, played it up that it might be. And uh, to that I say, so what? Uh, why does it have to be the next Halloween? Why does it have to live up to this uh, hype that a bunch of people who probably don't know shit about horror movies in the first place have imposed on it and thrown out in the media and reviews and stuff like that? Forget the hype. Just go into it without the fucking hype, man. Just go in into it and enjoy it. Uh, I think it's a refreshing breath of air. It doesn't sort of slam you over the head with explanations about what's going on. And it's not dumbed down, I don't think. I think some of the reaction I saw for this one was people didn't understand what the fuck was going on. And I, th I found it incredibly obvious what was going on in the film. And also the film's smart enough to leave some things open to interpretation. 
And I just think it's really creepy. I And I mean, people made, also made complaints that all these teenagers in this film are dumb. No shit. They're teenagers. They're fucking dumb. This is how real teenagers would react to this shit. If all of a sudden they found that the repercussions of having sex is to have this unkillable monster following you to murder you horribly. Unless you pass on this sex curse to someone else. I thought it was really great. I found it really original and I really enjoyed it. So... That's where I stick with it. I think it's one of the best horror movies I've seen in a long time. So, fuck the haters. Alright, and we'll move on to a couple more here, and then we'll get out of here so I don't bore you too much. I watched The Delta Force recently, and uh, of course another Chuck Norris film. This is when his career was really starting to pick up. Uh, I believe this is another canon film, from what I recall. I've just been sort of like revisiting some of his older films. Most of them are pretty bad, but they're enjoyable in a way, so I, I enjoy watching them. This is one I should have watched by now, right? I mean, uh, this is one of the ones that just sort of escaped me over the last, you know, over the entire span of my life. I had actually seen the Delta Force Part 2 and Part 3 before I saw this one, and yeah. <laughs> but um, I wanted to revisit this one, especially because it's uh, Lee Marvin's last role. And I can sort of justify recommending this one to about the halfway point. Up until then, there's sort of an echo of a Irwin Allen disaster film, like uh, Towering Inferno, Poseidon Adventure. Uh, just in the fact that it, it really introduces this big uh, ensemble cast of like B and C level celebrities that you saw on TV and other movies everywhere. You see all these actors brought together. There's the uh, plane passengers that get hijacked. Um, so you get to know them all, uh, and then you get to know the terrorists to a small degree. You see Robert Forster playing a uh, Arabian terrorist or whatever they're supposed to be, and it's actually kind of enjoyable. Like it, the setup feels almost like a uh, sort of docudrama to a small degree. The Delta Force itself, with Chuck Norris, Lee Marvin, and all their entire team, they're all sort of in the background until we get to about halfway point where they make the initial try to attack the plane and rescue the hostages and then it quickly goes off the rail after that it feels like halfway through the script they decided there's not enough killing and stuff in this like we need to start shooting some people so it sounds it feels like they punched up the script suddenly you forget basically about most of the hijackers and you definitely forget about most of the passengers like their stories just sort of go into the background and then they bring Norris and Marvin and the rest of the team right up to the forefront and the action just ramps up to the point where a lot of the times it's almost like feels like it's played for laughs but it obviously isn't and but at the same time it's still funny like there's this car chase that just goes on and on and it hits every fucking cliche of a car chase you can think of. And it's just, it's terrible. It's like, it's fucking laughable how fucking bad it gets. Um, there's just blood and bodies and bullets just piling up everywhere in the second half of the film. The only thing they didn't throw in it was, like, nudity. To look at this is kind of sad, in a way. Because uh, Lee Marvin was obviously not well at this point. I mean, he was just walking around, sort of skeletal visage of his former self. I mean, he he, he couldn't do anything in this film. Like, he, he obviously physically could not go around punching people. They put him on a jeep-mounted machine gun at one point, And he can just barely handle that in the film. So it's, it's kind of sad. But basically what they have him in there to do is to lend his credibility as an actor. And he basically spouts a lot of badass lines. Sort of takes away the attention from Chuck Norris, who is his usual awful self in the film. Uh, so uh, it, it basically just helps keep Chuck out of the limelight. 
And then uh, I wrote here in the review that essentially the two sequels make all the mistakes that the second half of this movie make. Thankfully, they stopped the series after the third part. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure most people don't even know there was a third part. Let's put it that way. All right, and one more film, and we'll finish this off. Dark Was the Night from 2014. And uh, I think I can read right through this one here uh, instead of trying to explain it as well. It's rare in this day and age to find a truly well-built, emotionally driven, and suspenseful horror film. The main characters we meet and get to know in this film are likable people touched by tragedy and we want them to get their lives on track and find happiness. The horrible events taking place in the wooded areas surrounding their town are going to test them. The biggest test is for the town's sheriff, whom after losing one of his children in an accident is trying to keep his family together when he is nearly ready to fall apart under the weight of his own guilt and sorrow. He doesn't feel worthy of his family or as the protector of his town, but he's got to face a killer stalking in those woods. Is it an old Indian legend come to life? A cryptid? A deranged killer with an inventive way of doing things? The movie keeps us wondering just long enough, and frankly, it should have not shown as much as it ended up doing, but that's a minor quibble. Here's the real issue with this film. The sheriff earns his family and his town back only for the film to steal that away from us in the final shot that reminded me of the enjoyable Bigfoot slasher rear window mashup abominable. In that film it works, but here it feels like a cheap twist that pulls the rug out from under the viewer. It's such a betrayal that it sadly sinks the film near the level of every cheapo piece of shit thing that passes for horror these days. That mindset that thinks every horror film requires a twist or a real downer reversal at the end as that one final scare. This film was so much better than that. If you watch this, do yourself a favor and stop it when the final stand in the church is over and done with. The best version of this film ends right there. And that's what I thought about this. I was really pumped with this film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, up until right after the climax of the film. And then you get this final shot that just basically betrays the viewer. And it just feels like an unnecessary twist. It's not one of those gotcha twists that really works effectively. And really puts an exclamation point on the film. It's just It just feels like a slap in the face. And that's unfortunate, but I still recommend watching this one. But I would suggest just stop it right after the uh, climax in the church. And you'll be fairly happy with it, I think. It's it's actually a pretty good throwback to uh, a really good moody horror film with a lot of great acting. We're going to end the review section now, and I'll be back in a few minutes with some DVD purchases. Oi, this is Alfred Hitchcock. And when I'm not directing incredible fucking movies or being dead... I'm listening to They Must Be Destroyed On Sight, a movie podcast. Come to think of it, I am dead. What the fuck am I doing this promo for? Alright guys, we're back. Gonna do one last little segment here on the podcast, and then we'll uh, skip out of here. You guys can go back to your day-to-day business without me seductively making sweet love to your ear pussies. I've got a few DVDs here in my hand, and I just wanted to briefly talk about them. So here we go. These are all recent purchases of mine. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors and The Monster Club, which are, uh, well, one of them isn't really an amicus anthology. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors is, I looked for this on DVD itself for quite a while and didn't find a copy. I saw a Blu-ray release. I don't have a Blu-ray player, so that was out of the question. But uh, every once in a while, you come across someone on eBay who essentially burns off their own DVDs and makes like fairly professional uh, versions to sell. 
and this is the case here. I got it from someone who basically just made the time and effort to construct their own DVD release. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if I can't find a good DVD release from a, an official distributor, then uh, this is the way I have to go. And it's, it pretty much matches up with the better sort of fly-by-night kind of DVD releases you see around. The print's really good. They put some time and effort into the actual uh, uh, label and everything in, in, the, in the slip cover or whatever on the case. I plan on doing a series on the podcast on anthologies. I don't know if we're just going to stick to the Amicus ones or if we'll uh, broaden out to other ones. Might make it a sort of a running feature on the podcast that we can always go back to every once in a while. I think actually that's probably what we're going to do. We'll we'll do that. Uh, start with the Amicus ones, and then we'll every once in a while we'll do another anthology night where we talk about an anthology movie because there's so many of them now so yeah i got that one and that one of course has uh peter cushing christopher lee uh fucking donald sutherland in it i, I think the only thing goofy about it is the fact that <laughs> peter cushing's character is called dr terror and uh yeah a little on the nose but uh pretty fun and then we have the monster club which like i said it isn't officially an amicus uh film John Carradine, and you've got Vincent Price, and it's got a pretty interesting uh, soundtrack, too. It's funny, this this DVD is, uh, I had to pay a little extra for this one, because it's kind of out of print. It doesn't really list it on the uh, special features, but you could actually play the entire soundtrack from the film. is actually on the DVD. Hidden special feature, so that's, that's kind of interesting. And it's actually got an audio commentary on it and stuff, too. Uh, the stories in this are kind of weak. It's just more or less to see uh, John Carradine and Vincent Price in the same film. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much the attraction of it. And they're, they, they're obviously having fun. I mean, it's kind of cheap. It's kind of a cheap film. He obviously didn't have much of a budget. Probably even a lower budget than most of the original Amicus anthologies did. But uh, it's a nice little bookend, though, to the uh, Amicus series if you count it as part of the Amicus series. Uh, next, I've got Three Outlaw Samurai from uh, the Criterion Collection. And this is a 1964 samurai film. And it's the uh, first film by Hideo Gosha. And he's probably best known for Sword of the Beast. That's probably his most well-known well film. That was like a second feature. Then he did like a lot of uh, Yakuza films and stuff like that. Um, this is really good. Uh, it's it sort of takes off in the tradition of like Yojimbo and stuff like that but it's far more bloody uh, it's much more action-packed and bloody and at the same time it's much more complicated there's a lot more sort of political machinations going on it's it's about the conflict between the peasants and the uh, samurai ruling class which is usually the case with a lot of these uh, pictures but it's interesting there's a lot of sort of chess game stuff going on what I like about it is it's got sort of a semi-nihilistic tone to it where no one really comes out of it completely unscathed things aren't necessarily re uh, resolved in the way that you would kind of hope uh you know in a lesser film they would be resolved uh, all neat and tidy but here there's a lot of stuff left open and i really really enjoyed it definitely going to rewatch this one tons of times great addition to uh, anyone's samurai film collection and finally and this is one i've neglected putting into my collection for quite a while and i don't know why uh, I should have had this earlier than now, but um, Deep Red or Profondo Rosso from uh, Dario Argento. And uh, it's the Blue Underground version, of course. And I wish it had a commentary, but this is uncut. So it's one of those ones where sometimes they, 
they found scenes that were left on the cutting room floor that don't have an English track on them. Anyway, I, I usually play these films in Italian anyway, the original language, if I had the choice, with subtitles. Kind of at the point now where I find dubbing really grating on my nerves. But this is great. This is one of, uh, if not the best known film from uh, Argento after like Suspiria. It's probably got some of his best set pieces as far as like just murders are concerned. Some of his best murder set pieces. It's not necessarily his most gory film, but it's got more of an impact just the way the the murders are conducted and just the style of the murders are in a lot of ways more brutal than in a lot of his other films. And it's got a pretty good little sort of mystery thing going on. Of course, it's a giallo, so it is a murder mystery at its heart, even if it has slasher uh, overtones. And really, really enjoyable. And I look forward to getting into this one again. We're going to be doing, uh, I'm hoping for October, we're going to be doing sort of a Italian Directors Month, Italian Horror Directors, more specifically. So we're thinking of doing like an Argento episode, a Fulci episode, maybe a Bruno Mattei or um, something along those lines. We haven't quite decided yet who all we're going to do, but Paul and I want to sort of indoctrinate Daniel to some of these films because I think he's going to enjoy quite a few of them because they're usually a lot more uh, art house and interesting than uh, the other horror contemporaries of the time. So that's what I picked up, and some of these you're definitely going to see talked about on the podcast in the near future so anyway i think we're going to close out now guys you know i'm always trying to improve this podcast as much as i can always on the hunt to uh make it better that'll be a segue into the song we're going to go out on which is the hunt by goblin from the dawn of the dead soundtrack please send in your comments please send in your criticisms your questions whatever suggestions for future uh movie reviews and uh we'll see you guys again soon
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on site. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.